and gentlemen, it is good to see you. Welcome to Sunday School. Um, if you have your Grudem copy of uh, Bible Doctrine, it's chapter 21 on page 307. It's kind of the basis uh, for the topic today. We're going to be talking about the doctrine of conversion, uh, dealing with our response to the gospel um, in faith and repentance. So I'm going to read from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 uh, and 15, and then we'll pray and get started. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. Beginning in verse 14, says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you uh, for this precious opportunity to consider this very important doctrine of conversion, our response to the gospel in faith and in repentance. Uh, Lord, we just ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts that we would see uh, your truth, that we would love your truth, that we would embrace your truth. Lord, give us understanding uh, what it means for us, and Lord, help us apply it rightly so that we know how we are to specifically respond uh, to your truth. And so, Lord, especially on these two points, faith and repentance, Lord, uh, just cement these things deeply in our souls, uh, Lord, and may we be more and more convinced uh, by what you say to us in your word and live by it. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, the doctrine of conversion. We have been talking a lot about uh, what God has done to accomplish salvation, what God, uh, how God brings that to us through the preaching of the gospel. We've looked at especially the effectual call um, versus the general more gospel call. Um, you know, the gospel call goes to everyone. Everyone who hears is outwardly called, but God issues this special inward call uh, by the Holy Spirit by which he calls us by name, brings us out of death into life, effects new life, and the immediate response of that is what we're going to consider today, which is conversion, dealing specifically with repentance and faith. Um, and again, it can't be stressed enough, you know, God is sovereign in salvation, but we must never think of it in such a way that our responsibility to respond to God is negated, it's minimized, it's downplayed. Uh, as far as we are concerned in our own thinking, our own feeling, our own responding, it is absolutely necessary for us to respond to God in faith and in repentance. Um, this is, as we'll, I think as we've said, this is the evidence of the new birth, the evidence of regeneration, but it is still something we are required. It's, it's, it's a willing thing that we do. We don't repent against our will. We don't believe against our will. We willingly repent. We willingly believe the gospel uh, when God calls us. That's good. Papa? I was, uh, I told Greg, um, a minute ago, I um, I remember uh, to this day when uh, Vic and I uh, were going through the Gospel of Mark and in Sunday school, and uh, I was just compelled by the immediate nature of the Gospel, the uh, the the brief narratives, and but the word immediate, 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 and 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 I mentioned to um, uh, to Greg. Uh, 
the, the chapter one of Mark, in the beginning of, in the beginning, one, one, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John appears baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And here's Jesus right in the same chapter as, as Greg just read. And now after John was arrested, Jesus came into the Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe uh, the gospel, uh, the good news. Wow. That, that, there's an, um, it almost invites a hallelujah, uh, uh, a response. And that's what we're talking about this morning. How do we respond to this regenerated heart that's now open to receive this good news message? That's good. Yeah, and you'll, you'll see here, John mentions in verse 4, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So to be forgiven, you must repent. Repentance, turning from sin. And then in the verse that Greg read, verse 15, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So now repentance is linked with faith, with believing. Uh, they go together. And then if you look at chapter 2, uh, the man who's lowered down the paralytic uh, to meet with Jesus, uh, Jesus says in verse uh, 5, first of all, when they lower him through the roof, if you remember that story, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, uh, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So again, sometimes the Bible will just mention repentance for forgiveness. Sometimes it will just mention believing or faith uh, for forgiveness. Sometimes it will put them both together, repent and believe. But you cannot biblically have one without also having the other. There is no such thing as repenting of sin, but not yet believing in Jesus. At that point, all you can really do is trade sins, right? <laughs> it's like a, a guy who wanted to quit smoking, so he started dipping. It's like, okay, well, that didn't really solve the problem there. Uh, it, it's just trading sins. So, okay, you might say, well, I'm going to turn away from alcoholism, and I'm going to start going to church and reading my Bible, but you're not yet maybe believing in Jesus. Well, all you've done is trade a more obvious sin for a more self-righteous sin, right? So now you're just going to find pride in your Bible reading and your church attendance. You're not going to find uh, the kind of feeling, the, the high that you got off of the, the alcohol abuse or whatever it was, but you, you can trade sins around all day long. But until you replace sin with Jesus, not another sin, you have not yet repented of sin. And, and a lot of people today will, will break a really bad habit, a, an obvious habit, an annoying habit. It could be alcoholism. It could be drug addiction. It could be uh, sexual addiction. It could be whatever it may be. Someone can break a pattern of rampant sin and turn their life over outwardly and never actually become a genuine believer. And you may remember the parable Jesus tells of a, of a house, remember? There's a house and there's an evil spirit, a demon in that house, and the demon, you remember this, leaves the house? And the, this is a really weird uh, sort of parable <laughs> when you think about it. So the demon leaves the home, which represents the life, and th when the demon returns with seven of his friends, he sees that the house has been swept, everything's been put in order, everything looks nice and perfect inside the house, and so the demon says, this is great, it's a great place to live. So he goes and gets his seven buddies, and the demons show up and live in this guy's house, and Jesus says the last state of this individual was worse than the first. Well, what does that mean? Well, at the beginning of the story, the person's life was in disrepair. They were obviously in moral sin. The, the house was not clean or well kept. Their outward life was all in shambles. It was clear anybody looks at their house and says, that's filthy, that's dirty, their life is sinful, it's messed up. And so when the demon leaves, this person does what while the demon is gone? This person does not invite Jesus into the home. This person without Jesus gets the broom out, gets the mop, 
does everything they need to do, cleans up everything in their own strength and power, and it looks like they have repented, right? Their whole life has been organized and structured, and everything looks nice. And when the demon shows up, there's morality without Jesus. And the demon says, this is my favorite kind of home to live in. And he goes and gets his seven friends, and they make their home in that house. And that's a Pharisee's home. That's Nicodemus's home before Jesus. This is, this is the high priest's home, Annas and Caiaphas, when they called out for Jesus' crucifixion. So there is a kind of false pseudo-repentance that does not actually save. So we, the reason we've got to keep repentance and faith together is because if we only talk about one or the other, we'll usually leave off something very important. <clears throat> if we only talk about repentance, we may leave out Jesus. And if we only talk about faith, we may get a watered-down version of faith that doesn't actually change the life and result in repentance. So, genuine saving faith is turning from sin to Jesus. Genuine repentance… Let, 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 me, let me reword this just a little bit better. I don't want to be sloppy on this. So, genuine saving faith is turning to Jesus. Genuine repentance is turning from sin. And if you're turning from sin, the only other option is to turn to Jesus or else you're just turning to a different sin. And so, turning from Jesus is repentance. I'm sorry, that's blasphemy. Turning from sin is repentance. I think I said turning from Jesus. And faith is turning to Jesus. And those two are flip sides to the same coin. They, they cannot be ultimately separated. Well, this is why the word conversion um, actually matters here. Because yes. the word literally means turning. It's, Grudem says that on page 307 there in the second paragraph. Um, and other, other guys who've written on this, I was looking at Gerhardus Voss um, earlier today, he says the same thing. To convert means to turn, and I think understanding, as Mark was saying, it's a turning from something and a turning to something. That's conversion, and as Grudem says, he says conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. And it's like the same, you know, an illustration that might be helpful. You've probably heard this before. It's like you have a coin. Um, you, won't, you don't have like just a heads or a tails on the coin. You have to have a heads and a tails. Otherwise, you don't have a coin. You have something else that's, that's not a coin. Um, when it comes to our response to the gospel, you have to have faith and repentance. And again, as Mark was saying, it, at some points the Bible will emphasize one or the other, but the other is never absent even if it's not emphasized. So keep that in mind. When it talks about repentance, it always assumes faith. And whenever it talks about faith, it always assumes repentance. So it is a, it is a, a willing, it's, a, it's repentance. Uh, we're going to look more at this. Um, where is it at? On page 309. I'm just going to go to repentance first because that's where my mind's at right now. Bottom of page 309, Grudem has a, a pretty good definition here. He says, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Um, and the reason why we have to stress this is that one, as we've already started to see, John the Baptist proclaimed repentance. Jesus said repent. Paul does the same thing. Uh, there are some who want to say repentance is something you can do later, but it's not necessary when you come to Christ. But the problem is nowhere in the New Testament do we ever see that. Every time faith is proclaimed, repentance is proclaimed. And again, I think that's why the definition here is so important. First, a heartfelt sorrow for sin. Um, if you're going to turn to Christ, you have to know that you need Him. 
You actually have to feel bad about your sin. You need to be grieved over your sin. It needs to bother you and be weighing you down in some way that, wow, I've sinned against God. I'm guilty in his sight. He is right to be angry at me. And this thing that I've done, this life of sin, preferring not God to what it, to God is like evil and it's wicked. And we actually have to feel sorrow over that. We can't turn to Christ for forgiveness if we don't feel the need for forgiveness in our own soul. Can, can I jump in yeah, there, Greg? Just, just on that point, it, it's not any kind of sorrow for sin. So someone who gets caught in publicly embarrassed in sin feels terrible no matter if they're an atheist or any religious view, it doesn't matter. It, feeling bad that you got caught or embarrassed over a sinful act is not repentance. Uh, that, that, that's something that anybody would feel over a public embarrassment. The issue here is, am I... Is it sorrowful to me that I have been dishonoring God? Is it connected in any way to dishonoring God in my life, to, 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 to dragging people away from God by my sin, by influencing people in the wrong direction because of my sin, not worshiping the one who is worthy of it? Is it in any way connected to God, or is it simply, is it selfishness connected to, you know, an alcoholic may say, well, this, I can't keep a job if I stay in this pattern of alcoholism, so i got to get free of it. I feel bad about it. That's not quite what we're talking about here. We're talking about something connected to God and to the glory of God and to those kinds of issues where we feel sorrow in relationship to those things that, that should spur us on in the, in the, in the whole uh, uh, conversation. So what no. do we do with that sorrow, though? I mean, that's, that's where faith and comes, comes in. We, we have to turn, uh, repent, turn, change mind go to Jesus. Yes. And that's what he said, repent and believe. I, I know we jumped on your repentance No, it's first, fine. But no, I, go ahead. That's good. I, I picked repent, repentance first as well. That's <laughs> <laughs> all right. My mind goes there too. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but listen to this. Paul talking about uh, uh, a man who was disciplined in the church for his sin. He says, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting for you, or he's talking to the church, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And that's where Mark is getting what he's saying is there's a, I mean, we, we deal with this with our kids all the time. It's like you do something wrong, you know, a sister to a brother, you need to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You're just saying that because mommy and daddy told you to. You don't really feel bad yet that you've done something wrong to your sibling. Um, no, and, and that's like a worldly repentance. You, you, you feel bad that you got in trouble. Not that you sinned against God and that's wrong. You just, well, I shouldn't have done it because mommy and daddy got upset. No, real repentance isn't sorry that we got in trouble. It's a grief, the fact that we actually did wrong before God and that bothers us. Um, so let's make sure we keep that, as they were saying, um, in proper proportion. Let, let me, uh, yeah, once more, just on that verse you read, mm -hmm. uh, worldly sorrow produces death, but godly sorrow produces repentance, leads to life without regret. I've used this illustration before, but just a perfect and tragic illustration of this would be Judas and Peter on the night of the betrayal. They both commit a very similar sin, Right? Peter denies Jesus to save his own life. Judas betrays him for money, but it's very similar sin. But the difference is one had worldly sorrow that literally produced death. Judas went out and hung himself. 
Peter had godly grief. He went out and wept bitterly, and it led to repentance and life without regret. Fifty days later, Peter's the one standing up at Pentecost confronting those who had Jesus killed and calling for their repentance, full of life and joy and no regret. He is confident in the Lord, whereas Judas is now gone. As Jesus would say, he went to his own place, or he went to the place that was his own. He, was, he perished in his sin. So, these two men who both called themselves disciples were both present for Jesus' ministry, they both would have been, you know, members of the same church, if you want to put it in that language. They were all around Jesus all the time, listening to Jesus preach hundreds of times, perhaps, over those years. And at the end of the day, one of them had, what, worldly grief that produced death. The other one had godly grief that produced repentance in life. Yeah, so, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, looking back into the definition then, just going further in light of what we've been saying, one, it's a heartfelt sorrow for sin. Number two, it is a renouncing of it. Uh, Again, when we're turning in faith to Christ, we're going to look at faith in a little bit, uh, but when you think of turning, in, turning to faith in Christ to trust Him and follow Him, that means you have to renounce uh, the other way you were living, however that was, if you're going to follow Jesus. Because to say, I'm going to trust in Jesus and follow Him, means I'm going to have a way of life marked by Jesus. And the only way we can have a way of life marked by Jesus is if we're renouncing, saying, I'm done with, as best as I can, as a settled state of being, this other way of living. Now, when we say that, that does not mean that we're going to perfectly repent, like that, that somehow I'm going to renounce this and I'm never going to struggle again. Right. That's not what we're saying. And I think we have to stress that. I, I think I've, I've encountered folks, I struggle with this some when I was in college and some other folks too that I talked with. And once the Lord kind of helped me get straight on it, it's like you can always repent more than you did before. I mean, think about if you've, you've been studying the Bible any length of time, if you've been walking with Christ, sitting under good preaching, you know more about God. You understand sin better now than you did then. And so when you sin, you're like, oh, wow, this is even worse than I originally thought it was. Does that mean your repentance before somehow wasn't good enough or wasn't enough? No. It simply means as you grow, your repentance grows with you. The more we know God, the more we understand how evil sin is, hopefully the quicker we should be to repent and the greater our grief over it. Um, but it is a renouncing of it. And sometimes, guys, we, we have an, well, starting off, we have an initial renouncing when we trust Jesus, but that's, it, it's a renouncing that we have to keep doing throughout the rest of our Christian life. Um, I mean, what does John say? If, um, was it, if you confess your sins, he's talking to believers, not unbelievers, but believers in 1 John chapter 1. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. And so along with repentance is confession and all that. But that means as a Christian, you're still going to fall short. You're still going to sin. You're still going to need to repent. And so repentance is an ongoing thing in the life of a believer. It was said uh, by one guy, what's the, the real difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Non-believers are sinners. Christians are repenting sinners, meaning we realize we're sinners and we're doing our best every day to turn away from our sin and renounce it and follow Jesus. Other thoughts? That's good. Well, you know, I, going back to, uh, again, the first chapter of Mark, you know, Mark was preaching a... Um, proclaiming a baptism of repentance uh, for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, verse 5, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, these are Jews. These are not Gentiles. These are Jews coming to John and confessing their sins. They had a system for that. It was called the law. They had a temple, and they had sacrifices. John was introducing the kingdom of God. This new kingdom of God uh, required a 
repentance of sin, a profession of, of sin, and, and turning to faith in Christ. And, and that's a life. He was, he was simply introducing in first century Palestine something that we're still doing today, the rudiments of what we're talking about this afternoon. That's good. Um, th- this is something that uh, is probably worth discussing on, along these lines. Um, one, one of the, and it's often good to both compliment and also critique kind of where you came from and what you, the background in, in, our, in the South, especially in the United States. I, I mentioned this the last couple of weeks, but it's just so important. I, I think that we've had a generally unhealthy, and I'm, when I say this, I'm not saying people are not genuinely getting saved, okay? But I think there's, a, there's been a generally unhealthy teaching in especially Baptist churches in the last century on conversion. I think it's been watered down to something less than it actually is, so that at the end of the day, um, you know, you end up, as Jerry Edgar, if he were here, he could talk about this. He, you know, he said, Westminster Christian Academy, right? We, Christian school we teach at. He said, you know, you could, you could, in a Southern Baptist way, you could convert every second grader in five minutes simply by doing this. You walk into the second grade classroom and you say, okay, would you like to spend eternity in heaven with mommy and daddy? Or would you like to go to this really scary, horrible place uh, called hell? Okay, you, everyone wants to go to hell. Okay, repeat after me. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus. I have sinned. I have sinned. Please come into my heart. Please come into my heart. Forgive me. Forgive me. Amen. Okay. Like now, little Johnny, little Jane, they're converted. These little kids are converted. Okay. Now let's go baptize them all. And like everything's great. And that's a bit of a caricature. I don't think that's far from how the Southern Baptist has typically worked in the last hundred years. And so there is, what we've done is that's, that's what we think is faith without the life change of repentance and new heart and new desires and new longings. And I understand when you're seven, it looks different than when you're 17 or 37 or 57. I understand that. But it may look different, but it's still at fundamental the same thing. <laughs> a new heart is a new heart at no matter what age it is given. And so I think that we have an enormous number of Southern Baptist kids who have, been, who have prayed that prayer, they have walked an aisle, they have met with a pastor, they have been baptized in their local churches, and they've grown up and don't show any sign of a love for the Lord Jesus in their adult life. And yet their parents and they themselves and their youth pastors and pastors continue to confirm that the date that they signed at the front of their Bible, you know, what, 1996, on this night, I was converted, and there has been no continuous evidence of real heart change, life change, change of loves, change of values. It's not there. So it's so bad to give an example of someone I know, a guy, a guy I went to high school with, the story ends really well, by the way, but the story doesn't begin this way. This, he had gone to a Southern Baptist church in the area. Uh, he had made a profession of faith. I'm sure he'd been baptized. And he had gone to a Christian school his whole life. You know, he's a Christian, as far as you would think. He, right around, he graduates from our school a number of years ago. He's a little older than me. And uh, after graduation, within about a year or so, he's living with his girlfriend, and now they've got, they, she's pregnant, they're, they're out of wedlock, they're living together. He then says he's an agnostic. He's not even, a, I'm not a Christian, I'm an agnostic, which at least he was being honest with where he was spiritually. But that wasn't the most astonishing part. That's sort of to be expected with some people, sadly. But, but the astonishing thing was what I heard about what his parents were saying. His parents were saying, no, we know he's saved. Because when he was a kid, he prayed the prayer, he got baptized, he's joined our church. And to me, I'm just going, I don't want to be mean-spirited at all. I, it's, it's just a desperate situation. We want to be biblical about what conversion is. And I, I, am, I am afraid that a lot of people don't have a biblical enough definition where you've got a guy who's 
unrepentantly living with his girlfriend, unrepentantly, now he's an agnostic, he's left the church, and this has gone on now for several years, and the parents are still saying, we know he's a Christian. Well, the good ending of the story is, after a number of years, he started meeting with some Christian friends in the area. They started listening to sermons together once a week. They would listen to a sermon. He listened to a sermon about idolatry on one of these weeks, and he was overwhelmingly confronted with his sin, overwhelmed by his sin. He repented and believed genuinely, and now 10 years later, he and his wife are walking with the Lord, and they're married now, and a complete change of life. I I could tell you their name, and they they wouldn't mind if I did, but I won't do that, but they'll tell you their whole testimony. But but it started off with that note of this false assurance of salvation coming from the parents saying, well, there is no real evidence here that this person is genuinely repenting because they're not. And so, we don't, we don't want to give people false assurance of salvation, which I think, I think has been a plague in the, in the SBC over the last century. Well, it has. And I want to follow up, um, go even further with that, um, with a story that doesn't end as well, but I've heard people say the same thing. There was a teacher, uh, I believe it was at the McAfee School of Theology, it was at Mercer University. He was the, was, he was the head of it. His name's Kirby Godsey. Um, at one time, would have thought he was orthodox, believed all the right things, um, but slowly drifted and drifted away from orthodoxy, embraced liberal theology and questioning the Bible, eventually wrote a book called When We Talk About God, Let's Get Honest, where he basically repudiates, rejects all the major tenets of the Christian faith. Mm. Now, here's the thing. We'd say, obviously not a believer. You know, we pray for him to repent. We want to see him turn back and embrace the truth. He, I think he's dead and he never turned away from that. But there were some who had said, well, if he truly, sincerely prayed a prayer and trusted Jesus way back when, even though he is publicly not just denying Christ, but trying to get you to deny Christ, he's still a Christian. The Bible has no category for a believer who is publicly, personally, wholeheartedly rejecting the truth of the gospel and the truth of scripture. And that's why we have to be so careful with this and make sure we're letting scripture decide what it means and we're not imposing on the Bible however good intention because we don't want to say that a genuine believer can lose their salvation. That can't happen. But a genuine believer, as we stress Tuesday night, will persevere. They will endure in the faith. We're gonna, I think we're going to talk about that. That's in here, isn't it? Perseverance. Uh, it's coming up in yeah, a couple it's weeks. Up, okay, yes. yeah. So we're going to spend more time on that later. But we, we, we keep coming back to that because it matters. True faith perseveres. It may go through ups and downs, but it always comes back to Jesus. It cannot truly depart from him. Um, and so that actually, I think we need to probably, for time's sake, get into what faith is. Um, and so Grudem on page 307 and 308 lists three aspects to true saving faith. He says knowledge, approval, and personal trust. I listened to a um, R.C. Sproul talk about this. He said pretty much the exact same thing. But I think if you just, you know, we don't want to just take their word for it. If you actually study scripture and you think about how the word faith or the verb uh, we don't have a verb for faith in English, so we'd say believe. But when you read that in the Bible, it says believe in the Lord Jesus. It's just the, in the Greek, it's the verb for faith. Faith and believing are the same thing. One's a noun, one's a verb. We just don't say I faithed in Jesus. We say I believed in Jesus. It works better in our language. But there are three aspects to saving faith, true faith, uh, that we need to consider. Um, and Grudem, uh, the way he deals with it is actually really helpful Um, So the first he says on there on 307, knowledge alone is not enough. And what he means by that, it's not that we, 
we, um, we don't need knowledge. We absolutely have to have knowledge of Jesus, the historical Jesus, the historical facts, who Jesus is, what he did. We have to have the correct information in order for faith to be real. We cannot believe in a wrong Jesus and be saved. Now, that, we may grow in our understanding. Man, Lord knows I have grown so much from when I became a Christian, when I first started trusting Jesus to where I am now. My understanding of faith, my understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done, the fullness of that has just gotten deeper and sweeter and more profound. But you have to have a, at least in, 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 a, in a seed form the right information about Jesus that he is the eternal son of God. He is the only savior for sinners. You can only be saved by trusting in him. Um, You have to have at least that. You have to have at least that. If you don't have that, then you don't have the right Jesus that you're trusting in. I hope that makes sense. But that's just one aspect of saving faith, the correct information about Jesus. Go ahead. And just some heavy things here still to come in our time here. So that is exactly right. You've got to have proper knowledge, basic knowledge of Jesus, that he died for sinners, that he was buried, that he rose, those basic things. At the same time, the devil agrees with all of that and is not a believer. So James 2, even the... Okay, so James says, oh, you claim you've got faith. and You have no actions to line up with that. You have no love for the Lord in your heart, but you've got, you claim to profess the knowledge of, of God. And then what does James say? Well, even the demons believe and tremble, at least they have some action corresponding to their faith. They at least shake in the presence of God. But here's the difference. The difference between a false faith or a dead faith, in this case, the, the, the faith of demons, you know, look, it's Jesus, the Holy One of God. They'll announce that, right, in, in the Gospels. When a demon-possessed person sees Jesus, the Holy One of God, their, their, their doctrine is correct about Jesus. When most people don't get it yet, the demons get it. But here's the difference. Knowing the truth of the gospel is necessary, but it is not enough. And in fact, what the devil lacks is a love for the truth. He actually knows it's true and does not delight in it. And so it is not a passion of his life to delight in the gospel. It's a passion of his life, in his case, extreme, to oppose the gospel. You don't have to be in so so much of an active opposition, but to have a real delight in it, a a thrill in the truth and beauty of who God is and what Jesus has done uh, is is essential to to the gospel, to, to faith. Well, they used Nicodemus on page 308 as an example of, of you know, he had some, he had some knowledge. Yeah. Uh, he, was a, he, he realized that this was a man from God. He saw some of the uh, miracles, and, uh, but he was not, he had not uh, exhibited faith. He had not believed the gospel. So knowledge is, is not enough. Belief is important. And then ultimately trust, which is another term for faith, that you trust Christ. Well, and this, this matters too, because, you know, if you want to say the three steps, knowledge, approval, or you could say agreeing, and then the trust aspect, again, it's like you can know the facts about Jesus. You can even say, I think those facts are true. And the sad part is that there is a movement called free grace theology. Uh, you may have heard of it. You may not have, you know, a number of years ago, uh, John MacArthur was um, in a dust-up with these folks because he wrote a book, The Gospel According to Jesus, in which he argued, if you're going to trust in Jesus, you have to trust in Him as Savior and Lord. And it was a whole controversy, lordship, salvation. They said, you know, free grace folks said, well, you're adding to the gospel. And MacArthur says, you're not preaching the gospel. And I think MacArthur was actually right. Um, that was a very influential book for me um, because the free grace people would say, And it goes into what you were saying earlier about just, you know, I believe these facts are true. Well, yeah, 
you know, I'm, I'm just going to pray this prayer. It's almost like I'm just mentally assenting to the facts of the gospel. That's not enough. That's not enough. MacArthur was like, you have to commit yourself to the Lord because that's what the Bible says you have to do in your faith. And so it's like uh, the illustration is, you've probably heard this before. I use this with my students um, when we talk about this in class. It's like, you know, you're, how do I know that you trust the chair you're sitting in right now? How do I know that you actually trust that your chair is going to hold you up? You're doing what? You're sitting in it. Yeah. It's not enough to say, okay, that's a chair. That's the knowledge part. The agreeing part is, I agree that that chair will hold, hold me up if I sit in it. The only way you know someone's actually trusting that the chair is going to hold them up is you're sitting in it. It's not enough to know about the chair and agree that it can hold you up. You actually have to sit in the chair. Anybody can say, well, I, I, I trust the chair, then why won't you sit in it? So that's what we're getting at here. It's not enough. Yes, you have to know the facts about Jesus. You need to be convinced that they're true. But then you actually, as Fred was saying, you actually have to take the step of embracing him, trusting him to save you. It's not enough to just have the facts and the agreeing that those facts are true and they're important and they matter. You have to personally, from your heart and with your mind, convinced willingly, say, I'm going to sit in that chair. I'm going to trust in Jesus because he is the only way. Yeah, and if, if you can turn to a, to a weird passage, 2 Thessalonians 2, and I say weird because I don't want to distract you because it has to do with the Antichrist and all this strange stuff. I, I don't, let's not think about that. Just don't focus on that. That's for another day. I, I want to focus on something else here that can get lost in this passage. So 2 Thessalonians 2 has a great piece here on saving faith if we don't get too distracted by the, um, the man of lawlessness and all that stuff for a second. So... And also, there's a big text on the sovereignty of God here in, uh, in destruction, but we, we won't even talk about that. We're just going to focus on one aspect of this. 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Now, here's where this is relevant right here. Those who are perishing because they refuse to believe the truth? And so be saved. What does it say? Because they refuse to love the, love the truth and so be saved. So this chair that you're sitting in, you've got to sit in it, but you also have to love the chair. You've got to delight in this chair. And then verse 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, what's the opposite, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, if you put the end of 10, don't get lost here. The end of 10 next to the end of 12, you get this incredible parallel about saving faith. So one way to say they're perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So you get this part of saving faith is not believing the truth, it's loving the truth. In the, in the essence of saving faith is preferring Jesus to other things, loving Jesus more than other things, delighting in Jesus more than other things, loving the truth of the gospel more than other things. That's at, the, that's at the core of saving faith. End of verse 12, all will be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Where your love and pleasure is is where your faith is in this passage. Do you see? So the opposite of believing the truth is delighting in sin, delighting in unrighteousness. And the same as believing the truth is loving the truth. So we cannot strip faith of its affectional element. There is a delight, love, pleasure aspect to saving faith that without it, it's the faith of demons. So, I mean, I, I just tell you, like I've told my testimony, I tell it all the time, but let me draw out one aspect of my testimony. Between age 5 and 15, I believed the facts of the gospel were genuinely true. But 
I did not have a delight in those things. When I became, when I was 16 is when the delight for the first time arrived. A delight in the Bible was a huge sign that I was trusting in Jesus. A, a delight in God's Word, a delight in reading it, thinking about it. Uh, it's going to look different for different people, but a delight in the Bible is a non-negotiable minimum of saving faith. If, if you say, okay, I grip my teeth and read it, but it, there's no delight aspect going on here. If that's true long-term, now listen, we all struggle. We all struggle with love in the Bible. I understand that. There's days when we, we, it's powerful, days we feel more dry. I get it's, it's a roller coaster for all of us. I understand that. But if long-term you say, basically, this is something I have to make myself read, do you really have a love for the truth? And if this is something that, yes, there's days you've got to drag yourself to the Bible and force yourself. That happens every week. There's days I've got to choose to do it. I understand that. You're with me. We're all there. But if there's not a general love of Scripture, a general delight in the Bible, the way you delight in sports, the way you delight in all these other things, is there a delight in, the, in, in Scripture? If you say it's pretty much willpower all the time, every time, I'm going to start asking some serious questions about whether there's a love for the truth. You, you know it's true. You feel like you have to act like it's true and good, but at the end of the day, is there a delight in it? And if there's not that love for the truth, that pleasure in righteousness, I'm going to ask some, I'm going to start asking questions. And if you say, well, I've really never had that. It's not a consistent part of my life. Then at that point, I'm going to start saying, well, I don't, I don't know that regeneration has happened yet. And that, that's where the, the target should be. Keep reading your Bible and plead with God to open the eyes of your heart so that you start seeing it as beautiful, not boring, not just black marks on a page, but the power and wisdom of God, the beauty of Christ, the patience of God, the holiness of God begin to come through the text uh, like rays of sunlight into your heart, and you begin to be affected by what you read. And that, that to me was the turning point in my conversion, uh, and that's, for many, that, that, is, that is a kind of telltale sign that something uh, of regeneration has, has occurred, that saving faith is, is starting to happen. I think, I think the love for, for Scripture is, is probably the number one, almost number one essential, uh, it has been for me, and, and, and it simply grows. I mean, like you said, you, you struggle with it sometimes, depending on what kind of day you're having or what kind of week you're having, but just the love of God's Word, and because that's how he communicates with us, frankly. And, and it, uh, he makes a point at the end of this chapter, how are we doing on time? Uh, both faith and repentance continue through life. Uh, Luther said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That's the number one thesis of the, of the 95 Theses. So it's an ongoing process, and part of that is reading the Word, being enamored by the Word. Would you say a good question to ask, because we need to ask ourselves these questions, would a good question be to ask to say, okay, look at things in your life that you, everyone would agree you love. So the, the, what, what are things you just delight in? Maybe not every day the same, but what are just the big values of your heart and life? And look at those things. List 10 of them. Just say, what are 10 things I'm passionate about, I love, I delight in? And then honestly assess where is Jesus? Not church, not Christian community, Jesus and Scripture. Where is, where is He and where is the Bible at in, in that, when you compare it to the things that you obviously love in your life? So if someone says, I'm a diehard Georgia fan, okay, that's fine, that's fine. Compare some of that love and passion with your love for Jesus. And if there's just almost no correspondence, you, like you, Georgia is just so much more superior in your affections than Scripture, Jesus, the Bible, which is really potentially possible in, the, in Athens, Georgia, if that's the case, then you need to start asking the question. So, nothing wrong with being passionate and loving many things in life, but if your passion for worldly things doesn't come close to your boredom with Jesus, generally speaking, I think you need to start asking some serious questions. That's 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself. 
to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. That's what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. So it is right to examine our heart. I mean, eternal life depends on getting this examination question right. It is not wrong to question and ask hard questions about your salvation. It is healthy and good and right. And by the way, let me even, I'm not just trying to completely, just this is an important point. Being even bothered about these things is not a necessary sign that you're saved, because I was bothered about these things before I was saved. So, I mean, I was just reading about Jonathan Edwards' conversion, and he was bothered about these things for years before he was converted. Spurgeon for five years probably before he was conversion. Bunyan, multiple years before he was converted. It is normal to be bothered and not sure about those things. Like, like Bunyan had that interesting story in his, his book on that. But um, uh, yeah, so, so asking those difficult questions and praying through it is, is a big part of the whole thing. Um, amen. Amen. Okay, we got a couple minutes left. Turn with me to John chapter 6, because I think this is a great text on saving faith as well. John has a lot on saving faith, but John chapter 6, just, just boil it down to a, a simple part. Verse 35 is just a, a wonderful verse, John 6, 35. This is after he's fed the 5,000, and he says in John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So, let, let's, I'm, I'm borrowing some of this from something I heard Piper say a long time ago, but look at 35. I'll read it again. This is a great definition of saving faith. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, don't go to sleep. You ever heard of synonymous parallelism? You know, you have the same statement said in different words twice, okay? So, you've got synonymous parallelism going on in this verse. Do you see it? Whoever comes to me parallels whoever believes in me, believes in me. and shall not hunger parallels shall not thirst, thirst. right? So, th th those are parallels. You put those next to each other, and they interpret each other. They help you understand each other. So, uh, to put this all together, what is saving faith according to John 6.35? Believing, there's the faith right there. Saving faith is right there, whoever believes. So, believing, saving faith is what? It's believing Jesus is the bread of life in such a way that you come to Him so that your soul's hungers and thirsts are satisfied in Him. So, saving faith is believing Jesus is the bread of life, not just like an academic in your brain saying he's the bread, the devil knows he's the bread of life in his brain. But no, no, believing, saving faith means believing he's the bread of life in such a way that the hungers and thirsts of your soul, you go to Jesus with them. Whoever comes to me, you, you go to Jesus with the hunger corresponding with food and the, the water with thirst. You take your hungers and thirst to Jesus, and because he's the bread of life and the water of life, and you believe that, you quench your thirst in Jesus. You satiate and satisfy your spiritual hunger in Jesus. I mean, all of life, we've got hungers and thirsts. We call them things like boredom or regret or, you know, we have all these names, but there's these hungers and these drives, these thirsts, and we're always trying to find things to fill them so that we can be satisfied. And we think going to the concert's going to make us happy or going to this or that, it's gonna, and this relationship will make us happy, this popularity will make me happy. And every time we put more food into our spiritual stomach, our stomach's growling again about five minutes later because it's not satisfying. So what is saving faith? It's forsaking all those other false foods and drinks 
turning away from them as not satisfying and saying, Jesus, you alone can satisfy my hunger as bread, satisfy my thirst as water, and so I'm going to you because only you can do this, and I'm going to find my soul's hunger and thirst satisfied in you. And anyone who's done that, do you think that's going to change how you live? Why do you think repentance is connected to faith? Once you know he's the only satisfying source of living water, then why would I go to anything else, which is what sin is? The definition of sin is trying to find satisfaction in the world. The definition of holiness is finding satisfaction in Jesus alone. And so repentance is saying, all these other broken cisterns cannot hold water. I'm turning to Jesus, the fountain of living water. I'm finding all my satisfaction alone in him. And when that happens, you've just become a Christian. That's repentance and faith. You've said, okay, all these other things I thought would work don't work. Jesus satisfies. He's all I want, all I need. That's why he's my Lord, my treasure, my Savior, because he's all I need, all I want. And in that moment, your eyes have been opened. You've turned from sin. You've trusted Christ. And as long as there's an ongoing pattern of returning to Christ as your satisfaction, not perfectly, but regularly, then that's evidence that you're born again. Uh, And if you're truly born again, that will persevere. That will endure uh, to the very end of your life. That's right. And if, if, if you're saved today and you're 20 years old, uh, when you're older, uh, you will simply repent more, believe more, trust more, glorify him more, want to be with him more, love him more, and on and on. It's just the way it works. Uh, if you're faithful to, to trust him and believe in him and uh, he he answer, answers your question here. All that the Father give me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So uh, as, as regenerated people, if we come to him, he won't cast us out. Uh, he's, and, and, and that's for today or 10,000 years from now. So uh, what an awesome that, that testimony. Is. Let, let's bow together in prayer. I'm going to read a little excerpt from a familiar psalm. Lord, your word says this, and this is the sign of a, of a new heart. David writes this in Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, for all of us within the sound of my voice right now who have had this experience, who have been brought from death to life, whose eyes have been opened, whose ears have been unstopped to the beauty of Jesus and the gospel, and we have, even if it's just... uh, not as much as we'd wish, but if we've tasted and seen that you are good and we've delighted in you, God, I pray that you would allow us and help us to do that more and more. And if anyone in the sound of my voice has not yet done that, Lord, I pray you would open the eyes of the heart, that you would grant uh, the willingness to believe that there would be a transformation and that we would entrust ourselves to you, that we would rest in the finished work of Jesus, that we would find our delight uh, in you and our satisfaction in you, and that we would ultimately see everything else in this world is like husks and ashes compared to the Lord Jesus. And uh, I pray now for our service coming up in just a moment that you would use this as well to awaken hearts, uh, to encourage us to to persevere with joy. Uh, And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Next, next week, we'll be getting to the doctrine of justification uh, and adoption, what happens right at conversion, and then we'll continue into sanctification, and then uh, the perseverance of the saints that Greg mentioned a few minutes ago. So, thank you, guys.